you for listening to the Women's Energy Council podcast, where we explore lessons and advice by some of the most senior female energy executives focusing on transformational leadership. Hello, everyone. This is Tim Powell, SVP of the Americas for the Energy Council. Today, we are joined by Lucia Martinez, the head of energy for Greensill, a private fintech platform that is providing working capital and supply chain finance solutions to the oil and gas industry. During the episode, Lucia walks through the evolution of her career in finance and what her team has planned for the future at Greensill. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Lucia has to say. Lucia, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Thank you very much, Tim, for having me. Absolutely. No, we've gotten to know you over the years coming to our conferences in Houston, so I'm looking forward to jumping in here. We like to start every episode with a personal background so everyone listening has some context. I think like many of your peers, you have a phenomenal story to tell. And so let's go through that journey and walk down memory lane, if you may. So where did you grow up? Influence as a child, where you went to school, so on and so forth. I'm originally from Nicaragua, although I haven't lived in Nicaragua since I was six years old. I do still have pretty much my entire family back home, and and we do visit often. And like many Nicaraguans, my family left the country in the early 1980s, in the midst of the civil war that the country was going through. And we moved to Costa Rica, the neighboring country where we lived for 11 years. And that's where I went to elementary school and high school. I um, was fortunate that I grew up surrounded by very extensive family, even though we were all just and importantly, I was extremely fortunate to have female role models around me and my family that showed me very early on the importance of integrity and hard work. So my maternal grandmother started the family business along with my grandfather out of their garage in Managua uh, when they were in their 20s and just recently married. They turned that a small ice cream shop into one of the largest dairy product companies in Central America. Really? And they did that. Yes, they did that. It's amazing. They did that with a lot of passion and a lot of vision and also many challenges down the road, including the confiscation, expropriation of the family business and their personal property during the Sandinista government in the 80s. And like many Nicaraguans went through that and many people had no choice, like we did, to leave the country and start elsewhere. So it was a tough time for them and for the family to lose everything that they had built over the years with hard work. But, you know, looking back, I admire how my grandparents and my grandmother in particular were never bitter about it. They kind of rolled with punches. It was not easy, but they carried on and moved forward and started other businesses outside of their home country, some in Costa Rica, some in the U.S. And some of them, you know, were successes, others were failures. But at the end, what was important is that they kept trying with the same drive. That's really interesting. I mean, so my wife is Mexican. In our circle of friends, there's a lot of Latinos. We know a lot of Venezuelans that live here in Houston that are friends. And I think it's really difficult unless you're from your home country from an area where there's so much corruption or there's a civil war or something to that magnitude to where it's literally you leave everything that you built, your home, everything, your career, just to get to a better place to raise your family. Unless you've experienced that firsthand, I don't think you can have an appreciation for that, but really wild. But so to experience it as a child and see that with your family, but then to see the resilience to rebuild, that has to have a lasting impact on you personally and professionally, no? 
it puts things into perspective on how fragile are things around you and how you have to build that resilience. And not all of us are born with it, right? It's something you have to work on and exercise, you know, self-control and understand that there's things are going to happen in your professional and personal lives that you don't are unexpected and you are dealt with the card and you try to make the best out of it. And especially being in sectors like oil and gas and banking, that both of them are cyclical in nature. It's important to have an appreciation for that. I think that resilience has helped me for sure. You know, understand that things don't necessarily go as planned, but you try to adapt and embrace change. So let me ask you this, being from Nicaragua, having that upbringing, and then you had a career in finance, has there been some personal pride in bringing financing solutions to Latin America? I know Latin America with political cycles can be very challenging to finance and you have to get creative and there's inflation and there's all sorts of barriers that make the normal type of financing mechanisms in call it Europe or US or Canada that are pretty standard, very challenging to implement in Latin America. But is there a sense of pride to get creative, get outside the box and bring those solutions to help companies, the equivalent of your grandparents growing their garage ice cream company into a large dairy company and just give them that at bat. I don't know if it's in the form of microfinance, right, for poor areas or just giving other businesses in Latin America that are more established and of scale access to capital markets so that they compete globally. Do you have any kind of personal stories around something like that? My career here today has been focused primarily in the oil and gas sector in North America. And when I was a standard chartered, a lot of the transactions that we did back then and during my decade at bank were primarily cross-border transactions involving Asia, Africa, and the Middle East, the markets where the strength of standard charter came about. And it was definitely a great opportunity for me to learn about how other countries do businesses, the different types of negotiations, different types of terms that work in certain countries and restrictions that are in the particular capital markets that are either government regulations or highly regulated or there is hyperinflation as you just mentioned in Latin America. And one of the things that attracted me to Greensill is precisely what you just described. The business was started primarily to help the small companies, suppliers. And I think we have a tremendous opportunity here at Greensill and it's been demonstrated with the type of financing we provide to actually expand into the small and medium-sized enterprises, including what we are doing in Latin America. We just recently acquired a company called Omnilatum that has a presence in Chile and Colombia. This company is a company that focuses on small and medium-sized enterprises in Latin America. So a lot more to do there, and I do expect that there's going to be many more opportunities to work with this new franchise that we just acquired. So yeah, let's go back. So how did you get, I know you went to school at Texas A&M. So how did you talk about that journey and coming from Costa Rica, coming over the States? Did you speak English at the time? Kind of that cultural transition would love some little insight there. So I did go to a bilingual high school when I was in Costa Rica. And you know, by the time that I graduated, my family was back in Nicaragua and uh, trying to rebuild the family business. And you know, my mother, obviously, she played such an important role 
informing me. And she was very passionate about the family business and worked there since she was 14 and then came to school to the U.S. and did many things in her career, including working in the public sector and the private sector and the consulting world. She was one of the first women to have you know, leading roles in the American Nicaraguan Chamber of Commerce and other organizations. So I had the opportunity to see that and I applied to Texas A&M and that was the only school I applied to, if that believe it or not. So that tells you how much things have changed since now in the Apple application, college application process since then. And I came here in 1994, went to College Station, and I really uh, very quickly fell in love with College Station. I know it's very hard to believe for somebody who's not an Aggie that you would actually love the place. But it was a, a perfect fit for me because as you just said, I came you know, from a small country. It was a good fit for me and in going into a small town, very friendly, very warm, and an easy induction to the U.S., to living here in the U.S. independently. I enrolled as a marketing major uh, in the May School of Business. And I think in my second year, that's when you start taking your other business classes. I took finance class and I really liked it. So I decided that I was going to also pursue a finance major. So I ended up getting a double major in finance and marketing. So finance made sense to me. And I realized early on, that's what I wanted to do. I didn't know I was going to land in banking. Actually, I found my way into the energy banking sector, kind of like pure coincidence. I think in my you know, senior year, not attended the career center and I found an opportunity to apply for a job at a commercial bank. And I came to Houston for the interview and very well, and I got an offer three months before graduating, which was in May of, of 1998. And I remember calling my mom, I was really proud of that moment and to tell her about the news about my new job. And it was a financial analyst role at CIBC, a Canadian bank in their energy team in Houston. So the first thing she said back to me is like, is it about the boyfriend? And I was like, no mom, it's not about the boyfriend. It's really a good opportunity. And I promise you that I'm going to stay here for a year while my visa is valid. You know, I had a student visa and the school would sponsor you for a year under that student visa. And then I'll get my master's and then I'll go back. This was in 1998 and really, you know, fast forward 20 20- 20 something years and I'm, I'm still here. So I ended up staying longer. Obviously, you know, I did very well at CIBC. I liked what I was doing and I was offered to stay and sponsor my H1B visa, which was the work visa to stay for, for six years. So okay. a couple of follow-up questions. One, this is kind of interesting too and unique to someone like yourself. So I have some insight on this topic of, you know, you come to America and you get a job and you're very much relying on the employer to keep your status to stay in the United States on a work visa, right? And my sister-in-law, Kremena, she's from Bulgaria. She married my brother-in-law who they now live here in Houston and we're very close. And she was with Deloitte. She's with another company now and she's a CPA. And she told me that when she came over from Bulgaria, there was a, a really attractive career path. And just in doing the math, you were more likely to get a work visa secured in that type of work. And it's a real challenge, right? You don't have the flexibility to just try anything theoretically, because if you can't secure that work visa and your student visa expires, you got to go home. And so that's a tricky thing for international students. And if you're international trying to start a career in the U.S. or elsewhere that you have to juggle, right? And on top of all the other things in your early 20s, you're juggling. Any insights there or did it all really fall in place naturally with CIBC and then the banks you work with beyond that? No, Tim, I think it was about 10 years before 
I got my green card. There, during those you know, 10 years, I was always constantly on the edge. I believe that I felt that I had to work harder than the rest, that I had to kind of stand out because I was thinking in the back of my mind that if I were to lose my job, I have basically 10 business days to leave the country. And while it doesn't seem like it is the end of the world, I really was passionate and I enjoyed what I was doing. And so in the back of my mind, that was always a constant reminder of how I really needed to do well and perform. And I know that many friends and business associates that have been in, in that same situation where, you know, you feel vulnerable because you are tied to your employer in a way. But you turned it into something really positive because you said, I need to to outperform my colleagues or put in more hours or whatever it is just to make sure I stand out and secure this. So you turned that into a positive. Let me ask you this. So I think sometimes with a career, there's some risks you need to take. Risks that if they don't work out, maybe it put your head on the chopping block, to use a metaphor. But if, if you take a swing and it works out, you can really jump in your career. Did you find there were opportunities where you had to play a little bit more down the middle and be safe before you secured that green card because it could really disrupt your personal life? Or were you able to separate those and really make the right move at the right time? I would consider myself a cautious risk taker. I was at uh, Fortis when the bank went insolvent during the 2008 financial crisis. And we were, prior to the crisis, we had a very nice book of business Been working with a former colleague of mine to build a business from zero to, to almost doubling it within three years. And so the business was growing and we were doing very well. And then obviously the crisis, the financial crisis happened. And there was a period of time where the business unit that I belonged to was in limbo because there was a very prolonged shareholder battle as a result of the sale of Fortis to BMP Paribas. And eventually the matter settled and, you know, there was a couple of months where there was not a clear clarity as to whether the business was going to stay going or where we would land within the organization. And I decided that I was really bored. I wanted to get back into doing deals and into the flow of things. So I started uh, putting fillers out there. And this time I was two months pregnant with my second child. So I could have stayed right at the BNP prior to Fortis, but I really missed kind of the action of things. And so I got a call from a recruiter that mentioned about an opportunity as a coverage banker in Standard Charter's office in Houston. And uh, I am so glad I made that move. You know, I said I could have remained in the status quo and it was a very good decision. I found myself a place where it gave me the opportunity to get exposed to doing transactions and cross-border transactions in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. I learned about how different cultures negotiate. I learned how the regulatory environment works in China and India and the restrictions that we have and face in many of those jurisdictions. And it was a great opportunity and I thought it was a very enriching experience and added so much perspective in my career path. No, that, that's wonderful. So where were you involved in the deal side? CIBC? And then you got more on the lending side at BNB Paribas and then you circle back to the deal side standard charter. Is that kind of the flow of it? No, I was one of the CBC, I was a financial analyst. And so I was in the in the deal team doing commercial banking. And so I covered the names like Enron and all the, the those type of names and a lot of RBL as well. So and it was junior role. And when I moved to Fortis, I was actually on the origination side and the marketing side. And since Fortis has always been on the marketing side, standard chart on the marketing side and here at Greensboro. 
so you go uh, CIBC, Ford's BNB Paribas, Standard Charter now 2010 to 2020. So that's a 10-year stint. And now you're starting up an, an energy group at Greensill. So talk to me about the transition period and July 2020. The, the world's stable in that time frame, right? No major changes going on. Time, <laughs> time to make a shift. So what's going through your headspace at that time? You know, I think we're starting to get into the new normal a bit right now, but it's still, you know, we're recording this October 2020. It's still really turbulent times. And so I'm sure the switch and the jump was kind of building up in Q1 of this year. And then you got to the point where you already make the jump. So I'd love to hear that story. And let's then jump into the Greensill store. In my last couple of years at Standard Charter, I spent a lot of my time dealing with risk and portfolio management and internal governance matters. And that's not really what I wanted to do. And it was part of my job, given the situation of where the industry was. But I decided I wanted to get the fun back in my job. And that's how I thrive. You actually enjoy what you do. That's one of the reasons I was attracted to the role at Greensfield. It was a very, very deliberate move in my part, as you said. I and I had a couple of interviews here and there, and I was amazed by the enthusiasm that every person I talked to had. And fast forward a year later and three months into my role, I can see why. There is go-getter mentality at Greensill that comes all the way from the top of, of the house. And there's a sense of enabling each other to win deals and to get transactions done. And that's what I was missing. I really have seen the true entrepreneurial spirit of Greensill. And that's what attracted me. It is a very good mix of talent, combination of bankers that left big international banks, combination of people in technology that are leading the market around new platforms, and a combination of a very, very strong distribution channel that helps us funnel that capital into the hands of companies or individuals that need it most. And so Greensill, I mean, our network is all on gas and energy globally, right? Greensill is not a household name in this space. You're starting up that group. Can you take a step back and describe the core business of Greensill? I know they're in supply chain finance and then, you know, some applications just to give everyone an idea on the types of financing work that you would be doing, you know, a couple of examples on the oil and gas side, on the energy side, it could be upstream services, manufacturing, whatever you see fit, but would love a little more detail there because this is a great platform to let everyone know about Greensill, right? It really is, yes, and, and thanks for asking that. I'll take a moment to explain who we are and what we do. We are FinTech and uh, based in the UK. We focus primarily on providing working capital solutions uh, to many types of companies. And as you just said, our core business is supply chain. That's how the company was built on. But from nine years ago to now, we've grown through organic growth and multiple acquisitions that have expanded our product offering into other parts of the working capital space and also into individuals. We already have some clients in the energy space, Tim. They're like mostly global companies, but here in North America, that will be my main focus to expand that practice, to get the name out there and to demonstrate the applicability of what we do to the oil and gas sector, which I believe it is tremendous underserved, particularly now. As you know, many commercial banks and investors are reducing the exposure to oil and gas or exiting it completely. And that's where we come in. Uh, we can fill in that financing gap with other sources of capital that we we have access to 
and our offer is really well suited to the oil and gas space because it is a complex and very interconnected supply chain and the players are different sizes and shapes and at the end of the day they all need capital both either short term or long term right it is a very capital intensive business on the working capital side and then to finance you know large projects right and to keep the production going and i think more than ever now with the pandemic is exacerbated the need for immediate uh, cash and cash on hand is quite important and with respect to the examples that i can give you on how we can help uh, for example uh, we can finance an, an epc contractor that has a mandate to, to build an energy plant and as you know these plants take years to build and in the meantime you know the contractor requires to place equipment orders and orders in advance in order to deliver you know the, the project and they don't get paid until the performance milestones are are completed so there is a gap in terms of when they have to pay for the equipment and when they get actually paid by their customer and that's where we come in we take a buyer sense approach approach to the equipment purchase and we advance that cash to improve it. And equally, we also have larger companies, global companies that have focused on working capital and efficiencies. And one of the similar priorities might be to continue having good commercial relations with suppliers or helping their suppliers by getting them paid earlier. And for example, if you have an upstream company or an IOC, you know, they have tons of thousands of suppliers and could be a pipe company or a regional low service provider. Well, we can come in and using our technology, we're able to onboard suppliers very, very quickly and pay them faster. So our goal is to get that money into the hands of people that need it the most. And I think now is these small companies feel more vulnerable. They're being squeezed out of the market. They have no margin. Basically, they have experienced a lot of cost cut from their customers. And that near-term liquidity, having that cash earlier, sooner, could be the difference between surviving or not. Yeah, I think you're doing a great service to the service supply chain, specifically in Latin America, just to use that as an example, anyone who works for an NOC, and I, I don't need to point out any particular NOC in particular, but you know the biggest challenge, if you get a contract with an NOC in LATAM or elsewhere in the world for that matter, it's the golden goose is what you want, but it's also a double-edged sword because you might not get paid for 6, 12, 18 months. And so if you can help bridge that gap, that's tremendous, and it keeps everyone healthy, which is better for the overall ecosystem within a country or region. Uh, let me ask you this. So you come from the banking side and have done commercial lending. There's reasons these banks are pulling back. Is it regulatory related? Is it macro political headwinds with ESG and therefore the private sector steps in? I mean, I think financial markets are efficient and there's a reason that certain players won't want to put forth capital anymore. It's not that they, they don't like making money. Can you just comment on that, on why some of these banks are pulling back and why Greensill seizes an opportunity to still make money and provide capital to the space? Yeah, I think there's different motivations behind uh, each financial institution's decision to reduce or exit. It is a combination probably of the factors I just outlined. There's a lot more focus around ESG and it's very important theme on corporate boards, on fixed income investors that are wanting to get more exposure to instruments that are sustainable and green. And it also has to do with the fact that I believe that capital is fungible, right? And so if there's other parts of the organization or the financial institution that are growing faster or that provide bigger you know, risk reward, that's where the direction of the capital will be uh, allocated to. 
And so I think that some banks are in that spot where they need to make those tough decisions as to where are they going to redeploy their capital the best. In the case of Rings Hill, we basically match our customers' clients' needs and objectives to an investor. So in that way, we are different from a traditional banking model because we pretty much tailor each transaction to whatever is required from both the investor side and our client. Excellent. And then what about size and scope? Just for those listening who may be interested in reaching out to Green Sills, is, is there a, a certain threshold that needs to be met for it to make commercial sense for you all? Or are you pretty flexible on size? We're pretty flexible on size for, for you know, it depends on, on product we're talking about. You know, we do the small, you know, factoring programs or accounts receivable uh, securitization programs, but we also have done uh, programs that are a billion dollars, for example. And when you're talking about supply chain, those tend to be much larger ticket sizes because primarily, you know, we're trying to capture the, the largest amount of suppliers to help our the company achieve their goals. So this could be as big as $5 billion of supply chain finance program. Phenomenal. And kind of in closing on Greensill side, you're now running the energy group and with a focus on North America and the Americas. Are there certain target markets or client demographics that you see as ideal opportunities for you guys to come in and really make an impact just to highlight that out there for anyone who might be listening to reach out to contact you? Yes. So as I described at the beginning, so there's three parts or four, I should say four parts of our uh, product offering. We have what we're known for the most is supply chain, and that's applicable to obviously very large global corporations where they have to manage thousands of suppliers, but it's also applicable for projects as well, as I just described in that case of the EPC. So it is a very flexible product. I've already seen that many of the office services companies, even the IOCs and the EPC contract are the ones that the, the chemical companies do are the ones that seem to be more open and attracted to speaking about supply chain and addressing that piece of the working capital. Then we have securitization of accounts receivables. Uh, we purchased a company called Finacity last year and it has an excellent platform to deliver securitization of receivables. Uh, they have a long history of distributing this paper in a very secure manner in the sense that it's usually A or you know double A rated and liquidity, even during COVID for this type of product has been very strong. I mean, and even the price movement that we've seen in our financial offering is very minimal. So that securitization offering, it really can apply to any type of company. My experience since I joined, it's been the sector that has been more receptive to securitization has been small to mid-sized companies that are in the high yield category, because that is an easy way to access capital and also reduce the pricing of their cost of lending. And then we can talk about more specific products that are inventory financing or structured products that are, I would say, more bespoke and tailored to what the, the client's needs are. And they're usually related to a specific transaction. And lastly, something that I, you know, we hadn't touched is, and I think I mentioned a couple of times that we're entering into the individuals. So similar to what we are doing with helping suppliers, we are now extending that beyond suppliers to individual employees. We have a platform called Earned, and it's a pretty neat platform that allows employees to take their pay at the end of each day as soon as they've earned it and with no need to wait until the next page day. And it's been rolled out already in Australia and the UK, and it's pretty neat. It's becoming very popular in those countries and we've just recently launched in the US and starting to talk to our connections and our clients about it. 
So let me kind of drill down that further so I understand. So instead of getting pay every couple of weeks, you're getting pay broken out by the day or is it being invested on you guys are investing the money? Explain to me, is it like a payroll service? It is a platform that allows the employee to access their accrued wages before the paycheck day. So let's say if you get paid every two weeks, you worked today and you were want to access at the end of today, you want to access what you earned, you can do that through our platform. Obviously, the employee has to be agreed to the setup, but it is a great benefit, especially now where there is a lot of fragility in the in the households in terms of, uh, you know, some people losing their jobs and with a family member uh, that could be sick or, you know, all these factors that can affect the financial situation of a household. This way is allows you to have a bit more control of when you can access your pay. So we've already used it, implemented it, I should say, in the UK through one of our customers, the National Health System of the UK. And it was implemented in the midst of the pandemic. And it allowed many nurses and nurse practitioners and doctors to basically access their, their paid you know, wages, their earned wages, as early as a month in advance. That's really interesting. And what a timely, was that created as a result of the pandemic or you guys were working on that? Because that's really timely, no? No, we acquired uh, Earned, and which was an existing, you know, fintech company and now part of Greensill. Well, excellent. Well, listen, it's always a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks for going through all this, going through your story. Congratulations on the new role with Greensill. It sounds very exciting and we all need some variety in life. And so the new challenge at this point in your career, I'm sure, is it gets you up with a little juice in the morning, right? So I'm excited for you. I can't wait to see you grow the portfolio over here in the Americas in the upcoming years. As we draw the episode to a close here, just some closing thoughts and comments. I think circling it back to the beginning of the episode, uh, the Women's Energy Council podcast that we launched, one of the main purposes of it was to showcase the careers and the career paths of a lot of the successful women in the industry and to show this is a way to do it. I think there's a lot of rhetoric around getting more equality at the senior levels of companies. And for you you, and many of your other peers who have done episodes, they've had the fortune of having a grandmother, a mother, an aunt that was a great role model for them. I think they modeled that. And so we want to replicate that in the form of this platform for you to be a role model for others. And so if you are kind of speaking to young professionals out there or your kids or yourself in your 20s, what is some words of wisdom, some advice that you'd like to pass down that can help people, you know, maybe avoid some of the pain that you might have experienced or can just help guide them in the right direction? Sure. So, so much to share <laughs> there, but I'll try to be succinct. I would say, firstly, that you should never compare yourself to others. Be your own person. There's always going to be a male or a female that is smarter than you, has better connections, gets paid more, got a promotion earlier than you did. And I would say that you should focus on yourself and know yourself, know your strengths and polish them. So you could become a very valuable person, asset resource to your company. And also equally important, identify your weaknesses. And if you feel like you don't know something or there's a specific subject that you would like to understand better, then, you know, raise your hand and try to get involved in something that or a project that will get you exposed 
and you're able to learn from others and understand or understand it better. I think leaning on your network is very important. You know, building relationships and earning the trust is quite important for career advancement and for, for knowing, you know, who to go to as a sounding board uh, when you're making decisions in either professionally on, on, on the business side. And I think also for, you know, females in their 20s entering the workforce now and going back to the first discussions points we had, it would tell them that it's important to build resilience. You know, there was going to be many ups and downs, especially if you stay, you know, in oil and gas or, on, or in banking. And it is quite important to have resilience and self-control and embrace change and try to handle situations with as much control and understanding of all the other elements that are at play, because sometimes we fail to see what else is out there. And it's quite important, I think, to kind of take a step back and understand that not all of it revolves around you. And I guess when I look back at more mature years in my career, as I progress in the corporate ladder, at least for me, it coincided with the same time I was having kids. And I had to learn how to establish boundaries between work and home. And then looking back, I would have liked to have said no to more things and, you know, understand and differentiate what is a must to do. And, you know, in one of my previous positions, I had to travel a lot. You know, there was significant international travel commitments, which uh, required me to be away from home, from my kids for, you know, periods of one or two weeks. And I felt like I had to like move the world, you know, bring family from, you know, from abroad to, to help out and support the household. And it was a big deal for me. And my male colleagues could do it easily. They would go as long as three weeks down the road and then do it again in, in a few months. So yeah, we pulled it off as a family, but it was very challenging with my three young kids at home. So I think sometimes you have to step back and kind of try to strike that balance and decide what's best for you professionally and family-wise. If anything, this pandemic, I think, has taught us some of the, that, like the importance of, or, or I guess, do we actually need to be on the road all the time to continue to be productive? I think uh, we can continue to be effective, deliver results, and, you know, working or virtually or being a bit more flexible around, you know, the working arrangements. So there has been a silver lining about this pandemic, I believe, because it's allowed us to reassess whether this requirement of FaceTime is super, you know, it is, it is required. No, I, I think you're correct. I think we can all reassess that balance going forward. You can never replace face-to-face, -face, but you also, for those who are road warriors, uh, you know, yourself at times in your career, I spent a lot of time on the road and I love the human interaction part of it, but it's that constantness of it where you always have a suitcase in the corner of your bedroom. Why put it away? Because you're going to use it in four days and going to the airport and just the ongoingness of that. You start thinking to yourself and you go, you know what, do I need to go on all those trips? I think the answer is no. And now that the world has been forced to do business virtually, now it's more accepted across all age groups, all industries. And so blending that in tastefully, I think, is great. And I think it's better for quality of life. I think it's better for businesses in terms of managing costs, especially in a tough economic situation like today. And I think, you know, and I can't speak to this personally, but just, you know, I'm a family person, just the burden of family falls on the shoulders of women more so than it does their male counterparts. You don't have to fight as much internally. I think working from home, flexible hours, saying, you know, I'll go on trips, but not all of them, I can handle my business remotely. You've earned the right through this period to do that. You don't need special exceptions or an overly exceptionally like passionate boss that is going to cut you some slack. I think that's the silver lining of all this for sure. And, you know, I think finding that balance going forward will be a really good thing. So no, I think that's well said. Absolutely.
Well, very good. Lucia, thank you again for doing this. It was fantastic to catch up. Oh, on the back of all this stuff, oh, virtual is efficient and everything. I do look forward to seeing you in person soon. So whenever that becomes appropriate, I look forward to that. But in the interim, best of luck with Greensill and the new opportunity, and we'll be in touch. Thank you, Tim. Hello, and thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Women's Energy Council represents the largest network of senior female energy executives in the world with a mission of championing the leaders in the sector by giving them a platform to network, collaborate, and promote thought leadership. In addition to this podcast, the Women's Energy Council Network hosts a series of private dinners, receptions, and executive conferences in cities all across the globe. If you're interested in learning more about how you and your team can get involved in the Women's Energy Council, then please email Amy Miller, CEO of Energy Council, at amy.miller at energycouncil.com, or visit our website at www.energycouncil.com. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network that you think would enjoy. Thanks, and see you next time.